to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25 is where we are this morning, continuing our study through the middle portion of Genesis. As I've said before, our study of Genesis is meant to be in, in three different phases. Phase one was chapters 1 through 11. Phase two is uh, chapters 12 through 36. And when we get through that, we'll take a break and go on to something else. And then, by God's grace, we'll come back for phase three, which will be chapters 37 through the end of the chapter. Today, we have come to chapter 25 and verses 19 through 34. So, verse 19 through the end of the chapter. From chapter 12 until now, we have followed the life of Abraham. And we have learned crucial lessons not about Abraham as a moral figure for us, but we've learned at, at the heart of it all important lessons about who God is, about God's control over all things, about His promise to His people, about His faithfulness, and about His trustworthiness. That has been at the heart of what we've studied in the life of Abraham. And then along the way, we have also seen by Abraham's example what a life of faith in God looks like in the ups and downs of daily spiritual warfare in the sinful world in which we live. We have seen that though we are sometimes faithless, that though sometimes our faith is strong and at other times our faith is weak, and though sometimes we have victories and sometimes we have defeat, and though this world is sinful, that God is faithful to His promises and that He carries His people along. And even as we saw in the equip class this morning, that even our bad decisions can't derail God's perfect plan and His promises. Well, all of that continues now as we move past the life of Abraham and into the life of Isaac for a brief time. And then from Isaac into the life of Jacob. And as we begin, I want us just to consider a couple a couple questions to get us into this passage. Questions about the modern day. In a world where the church seems to be losing its influence, and where secularism is growing at a staggering pace, is there any hope for gospel influence anymore? Has the church finally been defeated? And has it now become irrelevant as the world would have us to believe and as sadly some churches would have us to believe? Has the message of the cross become irrelevant? Has the scripture become outdated? If you look simply at the current circumstances of this world, you might be tempted to think so. And it may appear that there is not much hope. Let's ask the same question about your own life. What about the circumstances that are, that are causing you grief and fear today? What about the aspects of your life that feel like they have spun out of control? Does that mean that God's word is no longer relevant? that God has somehow failed in His plan for your life. If you look at circumstances, you might be tempted to think that's the case. 
But there is a bigger picture in it all. We've been learning that all along. There is something bigger that is going on, something that we often cannot see. Because the reality is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the head of his church. And he has promised on his own life that he will build this church. Which means he will also build his people. And the gates of hell will not prevail against him. In fact, the whole Bible, when you look at the picture of, of, of salvation history from beginning to end, the big conclusion is a picture of a victorious Christ with his victorious people once and for all defeating the forces of evil. And so when we look at this picture, we see that we do indeed have great cause for hope and security and confidence in this world. Genesis chapter 25 Verses, 39, or verses 19 through 34 brings us into a new chapter of this grand story from start to finish. This story of God's redemptive plan. But what we find here in these verses is one of those accounts of Scripture where we see crisis come in again. It seems to happen over and over again. You feel like your life is just one crisis after another. You ever feel like that? Or it's just one thing after another? Well, take heart, believer. The whole story of Scripture is like that. It's just one crisis after another. One moment after another that seems to threaten the promise of God, that seems to derail His providence, that seems to take His plan off track, something that to our eyes often will seem completely impossible. How can God's plan possibly get past this? And yet over and over and over again, we see it successful. Well, here is another case where God's plan is threatened. And we find out that at, at the end of it all, that it was no match. That threat was no match for God's plan. In fact, the threat was part of God's plan from the beginning. That's how much God is in control of all things. In this passage, we see a glimpse of the utter depravity of mankind. But we are also reminded that God's perfect plan is only possible through His perfect power. And there is nothing for which man can take any credit. What we find here is the story of God's gracious election and the continuance of His perfect plan. And that's what I want us to see this morning in verses 19 through 34. So if you'll follow along as I read, let's look at our text. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, 
Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The first half of this text, verses 19 through 26, give us the account of the birth of Jacob and Esau, of their birth. Now, technically, it's an account of Isaac, but the focus really is on Jacob. And we'll actually find that throughout uh, the, the coming chapters, that Isaac is really just a transitional type of figure standing between Abraham and Jacob. That doesn't mean he's insignificant, but there's relatively little material given to, to Isaac. But in verses 19 and 20, we have a prologue to the passage that gives an overview of the family connections going on here, both for Isaac and Rebekah. In verse 20, we read that Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel, uh, from, uh, the, who was the Aramean from a place called Padan Aram, and she was the sister of Laban. That area is northeast of Canaan, where they had been living. It's in modern-day Syria. This is where Abraham's family is from. If you remember back to uh, chapter 24, when, when the, the story of, of the servant, where, where he was sent to this area to find Rebekah and bring her back to Isaac to be his wife. That's where this is coming from, where, where this family is coming from. Now, verse 19 introduces the scene in what I think is a little bit of an unusual way. It's normal to read, these are the generations, right? When there's a scene change and when there's a, a significant shift in the story, there's a little bit of a genealogy given. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. But then here's the weird part. The generations are given like this. Abraham fathered Isaac. And that's it. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Now stop right there. That's kind of weird to me that it wouldn't go on and say, and Isaac fathered Jacob and, and going on, but he stops right there. The text simply repeats the fact that Isaac was born of Abraham. But I think that's important because the intention here is to connect Isaac with the promises that God had given to Abraham. We saw that earlier in the chapter when Abraham passed away. And God immediately blesses Isaac. 
that with the passing of the patriarch was not the passing of God's plan. That it was moving on, next man up, if you will. And that God was going to continue carrying on his plan through Isaac and then through Isaac's descendants. And so here we find ourselves at the beginning of another chapter in the development of God's story. And then moving on to the events of the passage in verse 21, we read this. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. That means she was unable to have children. And immediately we're hit with a crisis. And those of us who've been following the story all along are probably already thinking, here we go again. Because just as it was with Sarah before her, now with Rebecca, she's the one who is supposed to be carrying on the line of promise. She's the one who's supposed to be having the covenant children. And yet here she is, unable, physically unable to do so. It isn't that they didn't try. It's that she was physically unable to do so. Once again, with man, something is impossible. And the only way this promise is going to be carried on to be fulfilled is now Isaac knows to fall down and to cry out to the Lord for help. And so that's what he does. And then we read that the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, that's not a little detail. That's a significant detail. And yet, it's a minor part of the story because it's just stated very matter-of-factly. And there are a bunch of verses that come after this. And yet, she conceives. But the Lord's healing of Rebekah's barrenness is not the end of the story. In fact, it's just the beginning because they did not just live happily ever after. This is not a movie where the big crisis was she can't have children and now she has children and, or now she conceives and then cue the closing credits and they all live happily ever after. No, that's not what happens. Verse 22 tells us that these children struggled together within her. To the point where she cries out, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? That's not just a, hey, what's going on here? That is a cry of desperation. Where she thinks this is going to be the end of her life. It is so bad. And that word struggled to describe what the children are doing in there. Uh, that's an understatement. That is sort of a euphemism because the word has the idea of heads knocking together. I've never been pregnant. Ladies, I would have no idea how to describe what you experienced when you had babies. But I imagine the idea of heads knocking together is not a comfortable one for you. This is not cute baby movements that mom and dad enjoy as they're sitting on the couch in the evening and watching just a little lump go back and forth. This is not what is going on here. This is a cause of great discomfort and pain and concern for Rebecca. She knows something is not right here. And so she cries out to the Lord as well. She went to inquire of the Lord, the text says. This is now the second time that we see a crisis already in this passage 
where Isaac in verse 21 and now Rebecca in verse 22 pray to the Lord for answers and they cry out for help in a desperate situation. And while it's not the main point of the text, I think we can, we can learn lessons along the way by watching their lives. And here is one of those lessons, that in times of struggle and perplexity and pain and suffering, we ought to always turn to the Lord for help and for direction. But that leads us now to the central focus of this passage, where the Lord speaks and where the Lord says and explains what is going on in response to Rebekah's prayer. He says in verse 23, two nations are in your womb. I'd like to think at that point that's when she knew she had twins. But the text says, behold, she had twins at the point of birth. So I don't know when she figured this out. But the Lord is telling her now, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And with this, the Lord reveals to Rebekah that he has a bigger plan for her and for these babies that are in her womb, something bigger than what she can see in the moment. This is a plan that she is already feeling quite painfully. I think that might lead us to another couple lessons that we can pick up along the way. First of all, that God's will is not always easy. Right? This pain is certainly within God's will. It is part of His plan, and yet here she is suffering. But also this idea that there is always a bigger picture to God's plan than we can immediately see. That there is suffering along the way. That there are crises along the way. Listen, Christian, don't expect the world to congratulate you for following Him, for following Christ, for being a, a person who looks to the Lord by faith. Don't expect following Christ to be easy. That is one of the biggest lies that supposedly Christian preachers have sold, not only in America, but around the world. You realize the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is one of the worst exports the United States has ever given to the world, and it is rampant. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't expect your life to be easy because you follow God. Jesus tells us otherwise. But in the midst of the difficulty, understand that there is something bigger that God is accomplishing through the difficulty, because of the difficulty, something you cannot always see right here and right now. What is happening to Rebecca here is completely within God's control and his plan. This is not an accident. God is not having to respond to anything. Yet, Rebecca wonders if she's even going to survive this. So the Lord reminds her of his promise to Abraham, her father-in-law. This promise that he would be the father of many nations, and then he connects that promise to the babies that are in her womb. Not only are you going to survive, Rebecca, but your babies are going to survive, and they are going to carry on the plan that I have already mapped out for them. They will become two nations, God says, and they will be at odds with each other. And so what is going on in the womb is a foreshadowing of what their earthly lives are going to be like. Not necessarily good news that a mother wants to hear about her children, but 
it is at least comforting to know that God is in charge and He is moving. This is not unusual. This is not something that is outside of His control. But then the real shocker comes in the last phrase. The older shall serve the younger. All right, there are two nations in your womb. Okay, I got that. They're going to be, they're going to be descendants. All right, one's going to be stronger than the other. Okay, I might expect that. The older will serve the younger. Wait, what? It's the younger who's supposed to serve the older, right? The firstborn is the one who gets the covenant promises. And God says, no, no, the older will serve the younger. This would have been totally unexpected. In that culture, the firstborn of a family was highly significant. The firstborn was the one who would become the head of the family, who would receive most of the inheritance. This is what the concept of a birthright is that we'll see later. In God's grand redemptive plan, here, as He often does, He is running contrary to conventional wisdom, contrary to conventional practice, by choosing to exalt the younger over the older child. Now, we who can look back at the whole picture of Scripture should notice at this point that that has been God's pattern many times. Many, many times. God chose Seth over Cain. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Here, He chooses Jacob over Esau. Later, He will choose Joseph over his brothers. He will choose Ephraim over Manasseh. He will choose David over his brothers. He'll choose Solomon over Adonijah. And, it'll, and the pattern goes on. In fact, the pattern continues into the New Testament in principle when we see Jesus born in humble circumstances, born in a stable, despised, poor, and lowly. And we see it also in the selection of Jesus' disciples, men who were not the respected of society, who were not the elite, who were not the knowledgeable of society. He chose, as it were, the youngers. to be exalted over the older. It shows us that everything that is happening is not by the strength or the greatness or wisdom of man, but of God alone, to His glory alone, and no one else's. Whatever we see from here on out, Isaac doesn't get the glory. Jacob doesn't get the glory. Esau doesn't get the glory, but God does. And you know, it seems that God loves doing this. It seems that God enjoys making things as hard as possible for Himself and then exceeding all expectations. Isn't that a glorious thing? I mean, it's hard for us when we're in the midst of the struggle, but isn't it wonderful when we can look back and say, wow! Look at how strong this God is. And so we don't despise that childish song that some of us grew up on. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. That's a profound truth. It shows us that He is in absolute sovereign control so that He alone 
receives all the credit, glory, and praise. And that leads us to another lesson that we can learn all along the way. And it is that God chooses the lowly and the weak and the humble to carry out his gracious plan. Don't ever think, Christian, that you are one of God's children because you were so special. Over and over and over again, God makes it clear, no, we were hopeless. We were undeserving. But God is gracious and God is powerful. And what a glorious God he is. And God reveals here another part of the story of redemption. We see that he is in complete control and that he is using even lowliness and struggle to bring about his glorious plan. So tell me, let's, let's consider that big idea in light of our own circumstances. Why do your difficult circumstances have to be the way they are? Do you know it's okay to say, I don't know? Because ultimately we don't. We don't always see exactly what God is up to. Why do you have to have that difficult coworker? Why do you have to have that impossible boss? Why do all the health problems have to hit you and your family? Why can't they hit them once in a while? Why is money a constant struggle? Why is it that as soon as you spend $2,000 fixing your car, something else goes wrong with it? Why? Or you fill in the blank. You name the struggle. Now, we don't always know the answer to that question. Why does it have to be this way? We don't always even know the what about what is God doing in all of this. Then we can seek it and we can ask for it, but that's ultimately not the point. This much we know. God is at work. And you can rest assured, Christian, that when your life is at its worst in this world, you know God is at work. And He is doing something that we often cannot see. And we don't have to know the answer to every question. We don't have to have it all figured out. This we need to know. We must trust Him. We can trust Him. Because He is trustworthy. And He has proven it over and over and over and over again. And we can live with the settled confidence that he will work out his perfect plan. Just like we read in Psalm 91 this morning. That's not a promise that our earthly lives will be perfect and peaceful every single moment. Because we know they won't be. But we can trust God because we know that's where we're headed. We know that's what God is working in our lives. And it is a glorious picture. And in all of this, we can rest and we can rejoice even in the midst of great perplexity and struggle and sorrow. Well, in verse 24, we begin to see the fulfillment of the Lord's words. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And then verses 25 and 26 describe these two babies. Not exactly something, for the most part, that You'd want to write down in a baby book, but here it comes. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Go ahead, laugh. I think Scripture's allowing us to. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, or trickster, or heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Get that. Isaac was 60 years old when these babies were born. 
20 years he waited from the time he prayed to the time those babies were born. 20 years. And we have a hard time waiting three days for something, don't we? 20 years. Let that be another lesson for us that we glean along the way. God does not operate on our timetable. He rarely operates on our timetable. His plans are much higher than ours. It is not for us to take matters into our own, to, to understand what he's doing or to take matters into our own hands and manipulate in order to hurry God along. Right? We've learned that one already, right? By watching Abraham's life, ours is to submit and follow and wait on him. Now notice the descriptions of these boys. Already Jacob gains an advantage over Esau just from the description of their birth. Esau is described only in terms of his appearance, his physical appearance. And at that, he seems to be more like an animal than a man. The text says he came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And the passage does almost seem to be poking fun at him. Why not just say he was covered in hair? Why say anything at all? Why does this text essentially say Esau came out like a red sweater? And to make matters worse, his parents named him, wait for it, Harry. That's what the name Esau means. What's the meaning of all this? Well, the text is setting a tone. The text is setting a tone for the entire lives of these boys. Scripture has very little respect for Esau. But Jacob, on the other hand, he's introduced not in terms of his appearance as Esau was, but in terms of his action, which somewhat foreshadows his character. Text says Jacob came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. I don't know what kind of delivery that would have been like, but my guess is it would have been very difficult. I would like to think that eventually they laughed about that kind of thing after some time, but I also wonder if they saw this as some sort of fulfillment of what God had said in verse 23 that the older will serve the younger. I wonder if they saw some significance to this as sort of an initial confirmation of God's promise. But altogether, whatever else we see, this passage gives us the background and it sets the stage for the next section of the, of the text. So verses 19 through 26 are all about birth. Now the next section of the text, verses 27 to 34, are all about birthright. We move ahead in time here from the account of the birth of these boys to now their adulthood and the account of Jacob acquiring the birthright from Esau. Here's where we begin to see the growing conflict between these two brothers, which will eventually become the conflict between these two nations. But above it all, we see another step in God carrying out his grand redemptive plan and moving the story on for the descendants leading ultimately to the Messiah. Verse 27 gives us a contrast between Jacob and Esau as adults. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, 
dwelling in tents. Now, if we're not careful, those of us who are accustomed to a modern day society where in our movies and in our culture, we tend to view John Wayne and Clint Eastwood as true manliness, icons of manhood, we might easily miss the picture that's being painted here in this text. We don't have enough information here to determine that Esau was a man's man and Jacob was a soft mama's boy. That's not exactly what the text is telling us. It could be the case, but we don't know. The focus is on something else. The description of Esau is simple enough. He's an outdoorsman. He's a skilled hunter. But the description of Jacob is a little bit more difficult. We would expect that, right? Esau is who he is, and that's who he is. Jacob, we never really get, you never figure out really who he is. But the word from which we get that phrase, a quiet man, is not really a compliment. The, the, the concept has the idea of being blameless, but it's not really a compliment. And blameless certainly is not the word we would use to describe the Jacob we know of in Scripture. But the idea behind this is that he was a man of soundness or level-headedness. He was a thinker. He was a schemer. He was quiet because there was a lot going on up here that people didn't often know about. And we'll see a demonstration of that in the coming verses. Now, the text also tells us that Jacob was one who dwelt in tents. It might be a direct contrast to Esau who lived in the field, but I think it might also, some have suggested that it connects Jacob with Abraham and Isaac, who also all their lives lived in tents. But whatever else we want to make of that, this much is clear. These two boys are drastically different in every way, and God is planning to use that to carry his story of redemption along. Now, verse 28 goes further and describes the relationship of these boys with their parents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rachel, or excuse me, Rachel, she comes later. Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, that's obviously not exactly a picture of a model home for us, creating this, uh, this, this distinction between the two in that way. And I suppose there are some lessons we could learn about marriage and parenting, but that would be a sermon for a whole other time. But as the story of Jacob and Esau continues, what this helps to build is this picture that Esau becomes a picture of those whose mind is set on earthly things, the game, the hunting, the being in the field, while Jacob becomes a picture of those whose minds whose minds are set on spiritual things. And I know there's not much spiritual maturity that we see in Jacob here, but there will be a glimpse of it going forward. And the same contrast is evident in the character of the parents, that Isaac was drawn toward Esau and tended to forget the promise of God, whereas Rebekah was drawn toward Jacob and for all their scheming and all their underhandedness and trickery, seem to still take God's promise seriously and pursue it. We'll see some more of that as we go through the rest of the passage. But then in verse 29, we see the account of this, this crucial encounter between Jacob and Esau. 
Once when Jacob was cooking stew, verse 29, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So Jacob is doing what Jacob does and Esau is doing what Esau does. Now verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. A literal rendering of Esau's request here has this idea. Let me gulp down some of that red stuff. Esau apparently doesn't really know or care what it is in the pot. But he's hungry now, so he wants to eat it now. And he wants to eat it fast. This, this picture contributes to that portrait of Esau as sort of an animal-like, impulsive, brutish kind of guy. And that little parenthetical note that his name would be changed to Edom, which means red, sort of referring not just to his hair, but to the stew, sort of indicates that Esau is going to live the rest of, this, of his life with this encounter hanging over his head. That's what he's going to be known for. And it isn't a compliment. And then... Jacob, the quiet man, the thinker and the schemer, in verse, 20, or verse 31 says, Sell me your birthright now. now. I mentioned earlier what a birthright is. That's the status of firstborn. So it's not this trophy that sits on his dresser. Okay? This is a status within the family of the firstborn. And with it comes the right of all the benefits of that status as the future head of the family. This would have included a double portion of the inheritance. I have no doubt Jacob wanted that. But I also think he was after that status of the head of the family. And I also think that there's something here in Jacob that wants to be the recipient of the blessing that he knows has been promised to Abraham and Isaac. He wants it. His motives may not be pure. I'm not sure they were at all at this moment. But God is using this scheming person to bring about his plan. And I think Jacob has some sort of idea that this is what is going on here. He still, in some small and maybe even twisted way, has some sort of spiritual mind to him, placing a high value on God's promise. Now, I don't know. You can disagree with me on that one if you want. But I, I think there's something there where he's after more than just a double portion of inheritance. Now, to us, that bargain might seem like something of, a, of an offhanded, out-of-nowhere idea. But I don't think that's the case. The whole tone of the passage seems to indicate this is something Jacob has thought about, something he has schemed about, something he was just watching for, an opportunity to grasp. I suspect that maybe even he and Esau had talked about it before. And Jacob knew Esau took it very lightly, this status of being the firstborn. So Jacob now knows this is an opportunity for me to pull this plan off. In verse 32, Esau responds to Jacob's proposal, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And here I think we get a clearer glimpse of Esau's character and what his view of the birthright was. I, I sincerely doubt that he was so hungry and so desperate at this point to give up his birthright for what was sitting right in front of him. 
In fact, I think he probably could have overtaken Jacob and just taken it for himself. But what this text is highlighting for us here is that Esau doesn't care at this point. He's more concerned about satisfying that temporal desire right here, right now. So Jacob moves in to seal the deal. And he's not willing to settle for a verbal agreement. He must swear. So verse 33, swear to me now. And then Esau agrees. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And just like that, it's official. Just like that, Jacob is now in the position of firstborn. And Esau has his bowl of red stuff. And just to be sure we didn't miss it, verse 34 summarizes and gives a narrator's comment. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now I suppose you might be tempted to feel a little sorry for Esau. I'm still a little tempted to feel sorry for Esau. He seems to be at a disadvantage his whole life. And here he gets swindled out of his birthright. I mean, bless his heart. He can't catch a break. But that's not Scripture's assessment of Esau. That rapid succession of verbs in verse 34, he ate, he drank, he rose, he went his way, indicates that Esau didn't tarry much over thought about his birthright. He wanted the stew, he got it, and then he went on to the next thing. And also the passage doesn't conclude with, thus Jacob stole Esau's birthright. What does it say? It indicts Esau's character. He despised his birthright. He didn't want it. Now, one thing is clear throughout this whole passage. Neither one of these men is worthy of the birthright. They're both scoundrels. They're both troublemakers. Neither one of them is worthy of the blessing of God. And I suppose that leads us to another lesson that we learn along the way, that God chooses his people not on the basis of their worthiness, but according to his sovereign grace alone. Because we'll find out he does choose Jacob but not because Jacob earned it, not because Jacob was worthy. God makes this point many times throughout Israel's history. You were chosen not because you were greater than the rest of the nations, not because you were worthy, but because I set my favor on you. That's it. And the same is true of the church and all who follow Christ. We have been chosen by God to be his special, peculiar, his His. His, his people in this world, not because we've earned it, not because we're worthy, but because He has chosen to set His love and His grace on us so that we would cry out, praise the Lord and praise the Lord alone. And anyone who becomes God's child knows that salvation is only by God's grace because we are wicked and we are undeserving. But He is such a gracious God, isn't He? And there's hope there. Because that tells me it doesn't matter how wicked and undeserving you are. You can be reconciled to God. Because Jesus accomplished it for you. You don't have to accomplish it for yourself. So if you've never come to a point of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not, if you cannot, in good conscience this morning say, I am reconciled to God and I am at peace with Him. And I urge you, look to Christ today. Because you can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven of your sin. 
you can have eternal life. Now, we've covered a lot of detail in this passage. So what do we do now? What do we do with all of this? How do we make sense of this? What does this have to do with me? Well, let's begin by reviewing the lessons that I've laid out to you throughout the message so far. Okay? Number one, in times of struggle and perplexity, we ought always to turn to the Lord for help and direction. Number two, God's will is not necessarily easy. Number three, there is always a bigger picture to God's plan than we immediately see. Number four, God chooses the lowly, the weak, and the humble to carry out His glorious plan. Number five, God does not operate on our timetable. Number six, God chooses His people not on the basis of their worthiness, but according to His sovereign grace alone. Those are some basic lessons that we can draw simply by observing the text. Okay, Those aren't the main point. Those are just lessons we learn along the way, lessons of the life of faith that we learn along the way. But then the New Testament has a little something to say about this passage. It takes us a little further. There are two references to this passage in the New Testament that we can see clearly that will help put us to put together what the main idea is and find some application. The first passage, if you'll turn over to Romans chapter 9, we find the first reference there to this story between Jacob and Esau. In Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, we read this. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is using this story of, of Jacob and Esau to illustrate the foundational doctrine of God's sovereign grace in the election and salvation of his people. And he says this, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And verse 13 is a quote from Malachi chapter 1. Okay, so this is talking about before they were ever born, before they ever did good or bad, I set my, my electing love on one and not the other. Then, the other passage that deals with this account is over in Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there. Hebrews chapter 12. This passage, verses 15 through 17, is used in the context now of encouraging persecuted Christians to remain steadfast and holy, not giving up the Christian faith for the enticements of this world and the temptations of this world. Okay, So don't be short-sighted, Christians. Remain steadfast with your hope fixed on Christ. That's the idea. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, we don't have time to go into an exposition of all those passages. I'd like to, but you won't want to stay for all of that. But the point is this. God is sovereign over all things, and he is in complete control. He is good, and he is therefore fully trustworthy in everything. Furthermore, God is up to something big and good beyond what we are able to see in our limited perspectives. God is up to the salvation of his own people throughout every generation until the day he returns. And that is an act that is of his sovereign grace alone. Therefore, it is available to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, no matter how great a sinner they are. That's the message behind God's electing love through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he is carrying out his magnificent plan, not only to save us from our sins, but to deliver us to our heavenly home where sin will finally be eradicated and where everything will be made right. Therefore, we can stand firm. That's the message of Hebrews. Christians, stand firm. Do not give in. And that is the plan and the promise. That is the story that began in Genesis chapter 3 and will carry on until Revelation chapter 22. In God's mercy and in God's grace, he has sovereignly chosen undeserving and sinful people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and like you and like me to be rescued from the punishment of sin and adopted into his family. That's Romans 9. Therefore, we can live faithfully, righteously, and godly in this present world with confidence and steadfastness and joy no matter what we face. That's Hebrews 12. Because we know that we suffer in this life, but we don't suffer as those who have no hope. We know that all things will be made right, and it will be worth it all in the end. So to those of you who are among us today who have never yet called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you need to understand this morning that God's big picture for you is not a pleasant one. That salvation of his people and removal of sin means the judgment of all sinners for all eternity, all who are not under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not in Christ, that includes you because you are God's enemy. You say, that's harsh. Who are you, preacher, to say something like that about me? You don't know me. No, friends, but I didn't say it. God did, and God does know you. Well, you're not my judge. Only God can judge me. Friends, you don't want that. My plea to you today is to recognize that you are a sinner and to repent, to turn from that sin and to accept God's free gift, free grace in salvation. Friends, don't sell your eternal future for the boiling pot of today's fleeting pleasures. Don't do it. Turn from your worldly pursuits and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you will be reconciled to God. You will have peace with Him. You will be saved. Now, Christians, do you realize that you have been called by God and rescued from eternity in hell? 
under his judgment. Do you realize that's who you are today? You have been raised with Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. The new has come. You are no longer children of judgment, but you are children of light and eternal hope. Do you realize that you have been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and that you have been freed from the bondage of sin? Why would you fear anything in this world? Why would you choose to live like the world? Why would you choose to return to the old way of life that is so wrapped up in the things of this earth? Why would you go there? when you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Why would you look for your happiness here? I mean, that's as foolish as Esau selling his birthright to eat one little pot of stew. (laughs) You have been delivered from sin through Christ. You have been given new life. You have been chosen to be his precious children from before the foundation of the world, not because of your works, but because of Christ's. So Christian, today, rejoice. Lift up your head, beloved. Stand fast in the truth that God is the all-sovereign God. And at all times, pray. Pray. Stand fast in His truth. Trust the Lord for direction. Ask Him for wisdom. Remember that He is in control of your life. And He is leading not only your good times, but He's leading your challenges. He's even leading through your foolish decisions. So Christians, look up, pray, commit your way to the Lord, and then march forward, and He will direct you. Don't let your life be marked by defeat and dread. Lift up your head, Christian. Smile. Rest. Because you have a great and glorious sovereign God who is going to lead you to his glorious eternal home. And when you see your Savior face to face, whatever it is that frustrates you today, you will not only see as no big deal, but you will see as worth it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,